Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. We were so blessed to really establish something that helped us survive at that time and be creative and be productive because society forgot about us. She was dying. She was so angry and wanted the record to reflect that we had to fight tooth and nail to be acknowledged of dying of AIDS. I mean, stigma was high. I mean, stigma was so high that people were almost abused. It's all right to be HIV positive. There's nothing wrong with being HIV positive. Your neighbor could be HIV positive. Back then, there was like a lot of pills you had to take. Virus, for me, is under control because I take these medicines and, um, well, actually, it's only one medicine. One pill once a day. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. This is a special edition of our show in which we are talking about an epidemic that has been with us for more than 40 years and asking why it persists. Over the past several months, I've been reporting on the early history of the HIV and AIDS epidemic in the United States. It's part of a podcast series I'm hosting called Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows, produced in partnership with the History Channel and The Nation magazine. You can find the whole series at blindspotpodcast.org. I came of age alongside this epidemic. It's been an intimate companion for me and for millions of others. I am deeply familiar with its nuances. But you know, after revisiting this history, I'm left with a terribly simple question. Why is this still happening? Medical science has achieved remarkable things since the first reported cases of the condition that would become known as AIDS. If the problem of HIV and AIDS were primarily or solely a medical one, it should be over. We already have tools to ensure there is never, ever, a new HIV infection or another death from AIDS. And yet, 630,000 people died of AIDS-related illnesses around the world in 2022, and more than a million people were newly infected. In the United States, the epidemic remains uniquely intense in the South and in Black communities. We're going to spend this hour talking about why that's the case and what can be done about it, and we want to hear from you, too. As I've reported on this series, I've been reminded that the history of HIV and AIDS is not only one of suffering, it is also a history of individuals stepping up where institutions failed, leading with love to take care of one another and their communities when no one else would. So if HIV and AIDS have touched your life or your community and you know someone who stepped up to respond, tell me about it. 844-745-8255. That's 844-745-TALK. I am joined now by Dr. June Gibson, 
director of the organization My Brother's Keeper, which works uh, on both HIV prevention and access to treatment in Mississippi. June, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And I am also joined by journalist Linda Villarosa. Linda has been reporting on both the AIDS epidemic specifically and health generally for decades. She was a reporter and editor at the New York Times and editor for Essence Magazine. And her most recent book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on Health on the Health of Our Nation. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer last year. And Linda, hello. Hello. And hello, Dr. Gibson. <laughs> I want to start by helping listeners understand the remarkable advancements we've witnessed in both treatment and prevention sciences uh, before we get into the many, many reasons that those advancements have not been enough to end the epidemic. But just so we level set with people, uh, Linda, in terms of treatment, we are now to the place where with a pill a day, people with HIV can fully suppress the virus in their bodies to the point that it's undetectable. So for people who do have access to this treatment and can take it successfully, what does that mean for them? It means you can live a normal life. You can take a pill and you are not, it's not a death sentence anymore. You can take that one pill and you can live your life, as we heard from the other two guests. Mm -hmm. In in our previous hour, we were talking to folks who were um, who are HIV positive and have been living with it for some time, uh, and um, and are able to take treatment and 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 go on with their lives. And this has implications for preventing the spread of the virus as well. Correct. Uh, help us understand what it means for the transmission of the virus if someone who's in treatment has an undetectable viral load. That means that you won't pass the virus on to someone else. So if you get your viral load down, you're undetectable. Then if you have unprotected sex, you don't pass it along to another person, which is what used to happen in the right. past more frequently. Right. So then this is an idea called U equals U. Uh, un undetectable means untransmittable. So we know if everybody gets this pill a day who is HIV positive, then no one, then they will be well and there will be no new infections, and yet that is not the world we live in. <laughs> um, Dr. Gibson, can you add to this? There's also a pill a day for people who are HIV negative, right? Yes, yes. Well, we, we, we have U equals U, but basically we have figured out how to prevent the transmission and acquisition of HIV. And so we have, and it's, it's, it's a pill, and each person is taking practically the same pill, but if you are HIV positive, then you, you take a pill that prevents you from transmitting the virus. And if you are HIV negative, you take PrEP, and that prevents you from acquiring the virus. So same thing, and it's, it's like a double, it's like, it's like double tapping a situation to ensure that we can kind of, you know, in, in theory, eliminate things and make sure that this doesn't have to exist. That's right. So, listeners, so now if you have questions, you could, we, we, I want to hear your stories, but also if you have questions throughout this hour about the epidemic where it stands today, we have two very smart people uh, with us. Call us up, 844-745-TALK. Uh, June, your own journey with this epidemic begins in the early aughts. You were uh, in your 20s and took a position at Jackson State University where you worked on a program supporting HIV prevention initiatives, but it was just a job. It, you didn't you didn't intend to spend decades in this work, as I understand. But oh no, happened? I tried to get out. I actually <laughs> tried to leave. 
<laughs> what happened for I, you? How did this become well, such a part in, of your life? I, I, I interviewed for the position and I had worked in the prison system. So I had worked with other populations and I, I understood the nuances of what were happening in the black community and how we were being affected by so many different things. And I got this job and it was building capacity, working with organizations throughout the country to make sure that they were better that they understood how to do things. And, you know, as a Black organization, there are times you could feel left behind. And it's not a feeling, it's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a reality for right. us. We can get left behind, we don't always get the information, we don't always know what to do next. So at Jackson State, which is an HBCU, there was this wonderful opportunity for us to work with other Black organizations to improve their understanding. This is not just HIV, this is how to run a program, how to evaluate your program. Understanding behavior science, understanding the nuances of what actually happens when you're working in HIV. And I loved it. I started developing curriculums and I really became really great at it. But it wasn't something I woke up and thinking that I needed to do or that I had to do. But I do remember the day I woke up thinking this is something that I got to do and that I never stopped doing. Mm. And so that was 2000. And so we're... 20, what, four years later, and I'm still in it, and I'm still loving it, and every day is truly a new day for me, and I absolutely love what I get a chance to do. And, you know, I I think you said that it was 2015 when you looked up and your work involved uh, helping connect services for older people living with HIV, Um, and it dawned on you that people had survived long enough to to age with the disease. Um, Oh, yeah, I distinctly remember no one aging. Someone called and asked us, did we have any uh, 45 years or older black men living with HIV? They wanted to do a survey. And I talked to the staff and then we were all like, there aren't any. Hmm. We don't have any that are at that age living with HIV. And that's a testament to what this disease has done to the community. It, It literally took the lives of people who were aging, who were going to be grandparents, who were going to be uncles, great uncles. So that was a whole group of people who were eliminated from our world. And I also remember the day that I got an HIV aging award that (laughs) we actually had, I think we had like 70 people over the age of 50 living with HIV. And it's, you know, I'm like, yeah, I won't do this program the same way. So I didn't do it the same way. I felt if you had you have reached this point in your life. You've lived this disease. You have made it to this point. What you do not need is more talking to. So we created <laughs> right? a program to get. Oh yeah, you 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 know what? If you made this point. You don't have to take your medication, <laughs> and you have been talked to. So we we did manicures, pedicures, massages, mm. um, dinner in the movie, things to uh, tackle the loneliness that you encounter when you are someone who's just aging, period, but someone who's aging with HIV. You may not have been allowed to get married. You may not have had children. But if you can have a circle, a network, and and this isn't a support group. This is a group of people who get to go out and eat and have good times and to eliminate the loneliness that comes along with HIV. It takes so much from us, but mm-hmm. what I refuse to allow it to do anymore is take, take the... take. 
family and friends and social activities from the community that has lived this long with this disease and they're thriving. At what point did that happen? We've got about uh, uh, 30 seconds here before we have to go to go to a break. But at what point did you feel like it was like, oh, yeah, no, now we can. This is about thriving. We're going to we're going to focus on thriving. Oh, it's 2018. Yeah, this okay. is recent. Oh yeah, oh this is this brand new. <laughs> this is brand new. Yeah, so HIV aging is a real thing, and it's a part of the society and the world that we live in. 2018. 18. Imagine that. Imagine that. This is the Plague in the Shadows, a special from Notes from America, focused on the ongoing epidemic of HIV and AIDS. We have made remarkable progress in the science and treatment of prevention. So why are people still getting infected and dying? I'm talking with June Gibson, director of the Mississippi-based organization My Brother's Keeper, and with journalist Linda Villarosa. Coming up, why all the remarkable medical breakthroughs have not been enough to end the epidemic. And we take your calls. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And this week, we have a special edition of our show. We're reflecting on themes that emerged in a podcast series that I'm hosting called Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows, about the early years of the AIDS epidemic. And we're asking, why is this epidemic still going on? I'm talking with June Gibson of the Mississippi-based organization My Brother's Keeper and with journalist Linda Villarosa. We can take your calls if you've got questions or if HIV and AIDS have touched your life or your community and someone you know stepped up to respond in some way. I want to hear about it. Uh, And let me read a couple of text messages we've received. Um, Someone in Sandusky, Ohio, says, at the onset of the HIV epidemic, our local Catholic hospital took a stand that it would admit and care for HIV-positive patients. The chief administrator, the Catholic nun, took the position that everyone is a child of God, and as such, it was her hospital's duty to care for them. She teamed up with a young general practitioner who who welcomed HIV-positive people into his practice. He joked that he knew who his HIV patients were, whereas so many other medical practitioners had no idea because patients didn't necessarily, quote, look ill or gay. Uh, And Krista, I'm not sure where Krista texts from, but she says, I run a women's organization around HIV and women called The Well Project and need to both uplift women, specifically black women and other women of color in this disease, as well as lifetime survivors like Kia LaBeja, who were born with HIV, who have been underserved through the epidemic. Kia was on our uh, previous hour of this show. 
Linda, about five years ago, you wrote a story in the New York Times Magazine um, that uh, caused a bit of a stir. It introduced a lot of people to the fact that there is, in fact, still a virulent HIV and AIDS epidemic in the United States, and that it's centered in the South. Um, Dr. Gibson is one of the folks you talked to. Can you just give us an overview of what that epidemic looks like? Well, it was interesting because when I first went to Mississippi to visit my brother's keeper and, you know, I had met Dr. Gibson, I was under the false idea that this was going to be a problem of a lack of education or um, just only poverty. And when I got there, and lack of access to services, but when I got there, there was my brother's keeper, which was amazing. It was a great organization. It was really doing good work. One of the first people I interviewed was a young guy who was in high school, and he had just joined a support group, and he was um, very smart. He had gotten a positive diagnosis two months before. And so I said to him, did you not know what to do to prevent HIV, to get prevent getting infected? And he said, yeah, I know, because we learned here in high school, we learned about it. And then I said, well, what happened? And he said he was in love. He had one time without a condom. And then I realized, oh, this is a numbers game because there's so many people living with HIV in the city of Jackson, Mississippi, so many gay men, especially gay black men, then one time, one by accident, means your risk is higher. And I started thinking about it differently and stopped thinking about it just as sort of like, oh, there's this problem because this guy did know how to protect himself it was just this one time. Can, let, just to pause, since you bring up that uh, that fact, that you're referring to some specific research uh, by uh, a guy named Greg Millette, um, an important re- HIV researcher who you you, you mentioned in the article, who um, established the idea that there are high infection rates amongst Black gay men and Black people in general, not because of more risky behavior, but because of the size of their social networks, and the prevalence of HIV inside those networks. Can you just explain what it is that Greg found that's so important to understand this epidemic? Well, it was really interesting, and Greg is such a wonderful person. I'm not very good at math. (laughs) And what he said was, if there's a high level of infection in a community, then there's a higher risk of getting infected because um, you're more likely to run into the virus. And um, what he also taught me was, People tend to sleep with people that are in their social network. So then you're sleeping with or using drugs in the social network where there's a high level of HIV, then it's easier to get infected as opposed to someplace else where there's lower uh, level of virus in the community. Right. And this is an important idea, that last part, because it got to have a high level of virus in the community because it had gone unaddressed for so long. As that's what I found in Jackson, Mississippi. And the other thing that I found was um, the reason I even got attracted to this um, this place and this idea and this story was because I noticed that all the names had something to do with taking care of one another. I met Dr. Gibson at Saving Ourselves Symposium, thinking, why did we have to save ourselves? And then I go to my brother's keeper. It's like about love and taking care of someone else. And I had interviewed someone from an organization called For Us, By Us. And I'm thinking, huh, why are we having to do this FUBU? Why is no one helping? Yeah. 
What about that, Dr. Gibson? Well, first off, can you, um, from your perspective, describe what does the epidemic look like in a place like Mississippi, which we should say uh, it has, I believe, still, certainly at the time that Linda wrote, the highest death rates from AIDS in the country? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, it really is where you live, work, and play. And that's going to be the concentration of the virus within the community. So it's it's no different than having salty food. If there's more salt put in your pl- in your food, you're going to have more salt in your food. So it's the same premise. And we do live in an area where we have more people who are HIV positive. And again, it's no one's no not what someone does is not their behavior. It's just they just live in a bubble which has more HIV infection. So that is the the nature of the of the the virus that we have here. And we do have education. Maybe not the best education. You know, we may not have everything that we need to have, but we do an excellent job of trying to ensure that people can get what they need. But when you live in a saturated area, you're going to have more infections. Yeah. And that's just pretty much the, the bottom line. You you also said something. to So when Linda wrote that article, it was the time the Trump administration was trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, and you told her that if they succeeded, it would simply make the whole country look like Mississippi. Uh, oh, yeah. Explain what you meant by that and, and how it's relevant to this epidemic. Well, oftentimes, in particular, um, my, my Black people can see Mississippi or see the South as this place where we are allowing things to happen. That, you know, this is just what you do with Mississippi or how you all let them do it. But Trump came along and gave a reality to all Black folks. He, it was a it was a clear announcement that from California to New York, from Chicago to Mississippi, we're all in the same boat. And your color of your skin is going to be very indicative of how you're treated in this society. And it's not because we're in the South. It's because we're black. And so, again, with Mississippi and I know where I live, I know how we live. I know the, the politics and the nuances of it. I never harp on that. I never dive into it. And I can't live there. The only place that I can live is coming out of it and making sure that we can get what we need for others and ensure that I can provide the services that I can. Can't help where I live, but I can help what happens to the people that I work with. Yeah. But on this just straightforward idea of like, so I've 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 you know, open this hour talking up saying, you know, we have these medical tools that, you know, there's mm-hmm. every pill a day to, to suppress your virus, pill a day to pre- prevent you from um, contracting HIV. I take that pill a day to prevent myself from contracting HIV. Uh, my doctor gave it to me when the, as soon as it came out, he suggested it to me. Um, why is that not enough in, in the populations you're working in? Uh, Well, first and foremost, when you look at behavior change, knowledge alone does not equate to behavior change. And that's just going to be the fact. I mean, we know a whole lot of things that we shouldn't do. We know we shouldn't drive fast. We know we shouldn't have a drink at the bar. So you having knowledge of a situation doesn't stop you from necessarily doing it. So I like to take the knowledge piece out. We can give them all the education, but it's not going to stop the behavior. And then you have to think about also with Black people, period, and particularly in the South, we have been disenfranchised from healthcare for so long. So it's like all of a sudden you want me to go and find out what's happening with my body, what's happening with myself when I haven't had these opportunities in the past. I'm worried about the bill. I'm worried about how am I going to pay for it? Who's going to take care of me? And once you get a diagnosis, the diagnosis doesn't end there. The diagnosis is another appointment. 
It's more appeals. It's more care. It's more and more and more. So there can be times when, again, because we have not had a very healthy relationship with the healthcare system, we've been ostracized, disenfranchised, we've been eliminated in it, we've been mistreated. You don't want to go into that system to receive healthcare. So it's so many nuances that people, you, you could think because I know these things, I should automatically do it. But when you have been mistreated in a process, it, it can be scary to find out what your diagnosis is, right. but even scarier to go through the steps to be able to take care of yourself. Right. I wanted to add that the infrastructure in Mississippi and in Jackson was made it difficult to even connect to a wonderful place like my brother's keeper. So there's a lack of transportation. I saw people walking to places. I sat in a support group that was um, associated with my brother's keeper, and most most people were in the support group, gay black men, were not talking so much about HIV, and it was a but people were positive and negative. They were talking about how it, they were going to get to the support group, who was going to give them the ride, how were they <laughs> right. going to get a job. Right, right. And they were talking about sort of activities of daily living that were preventing them for, from getting treatment and care. Oh. Uh, let, let me bring in Dorian in Queens, uh, Queens, New York. Dorian, welcome to the show. You have something you want to share? Hi, Kay. Thank you. Yeah. I, well, first I want to say, um, Thank you for the show and that so much of your guest from my brother's keeper before the, what, what she was saying before the break was resonating with me. You know, she was talking about no one aging and the numbers of medications. I wanted to honor my, my uncle, um, whose name was Mayor, uh, who became HIV positive in his forties in the 1980s. And, was constant. You know, he's a wonderful, caring relative. He's my only uncle and aunt, or aunt, um, and he was also gay. And um, as I said, became HIV positive in the eighties, and was often talking to me about. He was shocked at how long he continued to live. He died at the age of uh, sixty-six in two thousand and one. Mm. Um, and what happened was he he kind of transformed himself. By becoming HIV positive, he was in a community where he was constantly being with friends, seeing them pass away, having to, as he described it, reinvigorate his circle of friends, like, you know, rejuvenate, create a new circle of friends. And, but he decided to go from being a salesman, making a pretty good living, to earning about a quarter of that, volunteering for Meals on Wheels, doing reading for the blind, um, and um, yeah, you just talked about eliminating the loneliness. He, he, he told me about spending time just going and holding friends' hands in the mm-hmm. hospital. And, you know, just, it, you know, I, it, I just wanted to share that personal story and honor his memory. Thank you so much for that, Dorian. Uh, our conversation, as I said, is inspired by uh, a podcast I've been making called Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. Victor Reyes is one of the people you'll meet in that podcast. Uh, again, it's about the history of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Uh, Victor was born with HIV in 1989 in Harlem. Today, he is the director of an after-school program at a uh, grade school in Washington, D.C., and he does research at Howard University's Global Community Health Lab. And Victor, thanks for, thanks for joining our conversation. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Just to start, I, I wonder if you want to react to anything you've heard, um, uh, either from the callers or what, what Linda and, um, and June Gibson have been telling us. Um, 
I've just been enjoying everything I've been hearing. Um, they make so many amazing points. Uh, I think um, people seeking, feeling alone and and not kind of fe- feeling seen um, is important to, to kind of outline and, and to remember that even though people aren't, there's many people that are comfortable coming forward or seeking help or know how to find help, but there's the ones that... Uh, are not out there seeking help or feel alone or uh, have never disclosed their status to someone and just uh, don't know how to. And so uh, that's just some of my thoughts on some of that. And can you help people think about, you know, it's, you know, in 2024, um, when um, Dr. Gibson tells us, you know, well, some people like, are you, and you were telling us, you know, even the idea of still of disclosing your status enough to go get help um, is a challenge. Help, help people understand why, um, for people who would say, why? What's the big deal? It's 2024. No one cares about this anymore. No, great question. I would say, at least as someone that's um, that was born with it, that's perinatally infected, um, we were told to keep it a secret. We were told to say it was cancer. We were, you know, HIV was worse than having cancer at the time. And um when you and it was to protect your family, to protect yourself. So you grow up with this idea that I have to keep this a secret. I, I can share this. I might die. And so you go into adulthood uh, without realizing how quick the time went. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm I'm around. And but society's view on HIV hasn't changed in all this time. Science has done its job, but unfortunately, uh, the stigma around it is still the same. And so. Um, it, it's, it's a habit that's hard to break if you don't have the, mm. the mental health services around you and support systems and pillars in place to help guide you through, through that darkness. A habit that's hard to break. That's, that's strong language. Um, Dr. Gibson, what, what, what do you think of that idea? A habit, that stigma is a habit that's hard to break. You know, I think that's a, that's a very powerful statement. It's hard to for others to either either they want to forget that HIV even exists or they or they want to forget where it is right now. Mm-hmm. So the stigma is the one thing that stays consistent. For instance, you know we still have laws that penalize someone for having HIV and having sex with someone. Now, mind you, we know medication has changed. We know the whole idea of HIV and how it's transmitted and acquired is totally different. But the laws have not matched. The disease, but what has stayed consistent is the stigma. Mm-hmm. So I, he, that that's the truest statement I've heard in a very long time. And it's regardless of what happens and the advances that we've made in HIV, the fact that the laws want to stay where they are and still penalize someone for something that has a whole new rule, it, it's it's amazing. It's really outstanding to me that it, we're still in the same place because of stigma. I have to say too. June, I you know I have written about at length um, laws criminalizing people who are HIV positive and have sex and don't disclose, and I forgot that they still exist. Like there, yeah. it's because it's been a long time since I wrote it. I I I am guilty of that. I forgot that they exist still. Oh yeah, um, Tennessee is now in battle now because they are still penalizing. So I think they're they're getting ready to go to court. Um, Department of Justice getting ready to take them to court because it's still these same ideas about how the virus works. Wow. This is The Plague in the Shadows, a special from Notes from America focused on the still ongoing epidemic of HIV and AIDS. We've made remarkable progress in the science of treatment and prevention. 
So why are so many people still getting infected and dying? I'm talking with June Gibson, director of Mississippi-based organization My Brother's Keeper, and with activist and researcher Victor Reyes, along with journalist Linda Villarosa. Coming up, we'll ask, what can we do now then? And we will take more of your calls, 844-745-TALK. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Regina, a producer here at Notes from America with Kai Wright. I hope you're loving this episode. And I know you want to get back to it as soon as possible. But before we get back to it, I need to tell you something. As you know, we cover a lot of issues and ideas on this podcast. And we don't want to do it without you. Having your questions, stories, and experiences in the conversation is so important to us. So let me tell you how to be in touch. In the show notes of this episode, there's a link that takes you to our website, notesfromamerica.org, where you can record a message for us. Plus, our inbox is always open at notes at wnyc.org. You can write us, or even better, record a voice memo on your phone and send it to us there. Again, that's notes at wnyc.org. I'll be looking there for a note from you soon. All right, thanks for listening. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. This week, we have a special edition of our show about the still ongoing epidemic of HIV and AIDS. My guests are June Gibson, director of the Mississippi-based organization My Brother's Keeper, journalist Linda Villarosa, who has covered the epidemic since the 1980s, and Victor Reyes, an activist who has lived his whole life with HIV. And Victor, I want to play a short moment from our podcast um, in which you tell a story about your brother-in-law. It's your wedding. And he's written a toast for you in which he mentioned your HIV status. Um, listen to this. It's about a minute long, and it begins with my reporting partner, Lizzie Ratner, asking you a question. How have you dealt with stigma? Um, some of the conversations we've had revolves around innocence and guilty. You know, uh, if you were born with it, you must have been then innocent because you didn't get it behaviorally. And if you got it behaviorally, then you must be guilty of something. And that in itself creates a division within people in the HIV umbrella. As an example for my wedding, my brother-in-law officiated our wedding and he showed me what he wrote and I thought it was perfect. The one edit I had on it and I was disclosing, he wanted to, uh, I said, I don't mind disclosing. And the only edit was that he started it with saying when I found out Victor was HIV positive and my only edit was when I found out Victor was born HIV positive. So I felt the need instinctively to protect myself and to let it be known that I was this quote-unquote innocent person that acquired it prenatally. And so this is who I am. That's Victor Reyes in our podcast, Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. Victor, tell me more about that moment. Why do you think it was so important for you to clarify that you'd been born with HIV? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I grew up hearing family, friends, people in the street the, talk about HIV and in the most disgusting ways. And mm. um, I saw death around me all the time. And for me to to usher in a new life with a wife and to one day have a child, which, you know, I'm so blessed that now I do, um, I felt the need to not only protect myself, but protect my family, protect, you know, kind of what we, I represent, but also do it on my term. If it ever came out, if it was known, oh, Victor's HIV positive, I can control that narrative at least and hopefully educate people. And, you know, I was so lucky to people came up to me and said how brave I was. And um, I got to educate a few people. And um, even that just kind of seen as brave or heroic is awkward because, you know, society doesn't see it that way when you're an adult and, you know, feeling guilty that I'm around, but I've lost so many people, my brother, my mother, friends. Um, so, yeah. but yeah. It's, it, it is a complex web of emotions. Uh, Linda, you were nodding. Did you want to add to that? Yeah, I was just thinking about my own work. So my first story was in 1987, and for Essence magazine, I did one of the first articles on HIV, on AIDS. And I remember one of the lines was, the disease infiltrated the heterosexual community. Oof. Then the next time, it was in 1994, and we have Ray Lewis Thornton on the cover of Essence just to show Black women are getting this disease. But the cover line was, I'm young, I'm educated, I'm drug-free, and I'm dying of AIDS. Mm. Then, mm. 10 years later, I do another story, and I called gay Black men a bridge to, you know, the, the bridge to uh, HIV-AIDS to Black women. So I feel like finally when I met Dr. Gibson and I wanted to go to the South and I wanted to do this work around HIV-AIDS and Black queer men and trans women, it was a corrective in ways to say, I need to um, correct some of the stuff that I've done in the past. That, tell me more about that, Linda. So we've known each other a long time, um, and I have known your work a long time, and uh, you have been a trailblazer um, in the coverage of this epidemic, particularly amongst Black people, and you still and you feel like you have correctives to make. I do, because it, at each point, everything was new. I was learning as I was going along, mm. as many people were learning about the disease. You know, even the people that I'm interviewing, my experts were saying, we were in the dark. We, it was a vacuum of information. And it was also a vacuum of, for me, how to talk about it. And when I'm talking about Black women, not thinking so much about Black queer men. And I think that happened to, that is why we're in this situation now, where it still is a crisis. Yeah. Let's bring in Cynthia in Dallas. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Did you have a memory yeah. you wanted to share? Yes. Uh, in 1985, uh, my son uh, contracted uh, HIV. He, he has graduated from high school and went out to see his uncle in Hollywood, who had a restaurant and also did some filming. And uh, when he came to me to tell me, he said, if you tell anybody, I'll never speak to you again. So I had to keep it to myself. And so what I was a teacher at the time, and uh, we would get off in the summer. So my son uh, really loved Hispanic people, and he had a lot of Hispanic 
friends. And so we would go down to Mexico and we went all through the country seeing every uh, pyramid uh, there was in the country. And um, he also, later on, he told his sisters and uh, he went with one of his sisters to Washington when they had the big uh, uh, quilt uh, out on the lawn. The AIDS quilt, uh, which was sh- shown on the National yes. Mall in 1987. That's right. That's right. Uh, but uh, because I was, uh, you know, he lived in Dallas. And at that time, it hadn't gotten to Dallas yet. And it was in California when he got it. Hmm. Uh, how, how did how did so, you get past the stigma, or did he ever get past the stigma? Did your family ever get past the stigma that of, of him saying, you know, don't ever tell anyone? He finally, uh, when he decided to tell his sisters, uh, he, at that time, he told me I, I could talk to them about it. Thank you for that, Cynthia. Um, any of you sort of hearing that story, I mean, w- one, we should say, of course, that um, the the virus was all was certainly in Dallas by that time, uh, as it was everywhere on the planet by that time. But we didn't. It, it is the case that that was not what people believed, um, that we did believe that the virus was just in New York, San Francisco and Los Angeles. But still. Um, but it, anything you're hearing in, in that don't tell anyone, um, ever, Dr. Gibson, I'm thinking about people in Mississippi now, is that, d- d- does that feel like something that you would still hear? Oh, you, you can't tell people you're pregnant sometimes. So <laughs> you most definitely can't tell them that you, you have HIV, uh, STDs, all these things, because they are, they, they, they come with the idea of being bad. You know, we're not just the Bible Belt, we're the buckle. We're where all of it comes together. So if you are caught doing anything that's deemed um, mild or bad, then you you don't speak of it. It's not something that should be a part of the conversation. And when you would tell someone that you had HIV, in particular South or anywhere else, uh, they didn't want you to use their spoons. They didn't want you to have their cups. You know, they didn't want you at dinner. I mean, they didn't understand how it was transmitted. They didn't know. They, then they, and not only did they not know, they didn't want to know. They didn't have that true understanding. Even now, people think just because you have HIV, there's this automatic transmission that happens because you come into the room. So, yes, not telling was sometimes, and it was for your safety. So it wasn't also, you know, just for, you know, not people not to know, but just for your overall general safety in situations. And then we go back to criminalization. You tell someone you have HIV and you have sex, you kiss them, you know, you're you're incarcerated, something happens, they get spit on them. Now you have more time added to you. So I think even for safety and just overall just uh, living in an area that just wasn't hospitable to you having the virus just... You know, it, it's just a real thing, and it's still a thing. It mm-hmm. hasn't changed. Victor, I, and I know that this is something you're very passionate about, this stigma question. So what what has to be done then? Um, I think that uh, we have to continue to focus on mental health. Uh, I was so lucky. I've been in therapy since uh, eight years old. Um, after my mom passed away, my sibling and I were in therapy right away. We had a great support system around us. Um, doctors have to be interested in this field. I, mm-hmm. I, 
you know, if it's out of sight is out of mind, or if it's not talked about enough, then it's, you know, it went from terminal illness to chronic illness, so it might not be that serious anymore. And so I think um, also just having doctors continue to be interested in it and um, kind of realizing that care isn't linear. Uh, even I, as someone that's been born HIV positive, I had amazing care in, at Harlem Hospital um, and was taught from an early age how to advocate for myself in so many things. And um, even I'm having trouble with my care and just kind of having people mm-hmm. to look at my care as an individual and what are my specific needs as someone who was born positive and is looking for um, a partnership with my doctor, not just a, a hospital visit twice a year uh, or whatever. Yeah. Well, Linda, I mean, so this is a, another part of your work, you know, this just the ways that the health system and the medical and medical system have um, made it so difficult for black people in particular, but people of color to navigate um, is, is in some ways, I wonder if you think HIV at this point is not just, but just another one of the way the things that uh, it is very difficult for the health system to serve black people in. I think that's really true. And I thought about it a lot during covid because that's another infectious disease. And many of the people that knew about HIV then knew about COVID. And then, so then a lot of the things that came up in my HIV reporting came up again during the COVID reporting, including stigma, including lack of access to healthcare, including shame, and, you know, all of these things. And also this was a, both of them were diseases that came into the places where there were cracks or fissures or discrimination or problems. and But also on the flip positive side that a lot of the same experts who made their way and figured things out during the HIV epidemic were the leaders, starting with Anthony Fauci, when COVID rolled around. Because mm-hmm, they had learned something. Y- you point out um, that, so we've talked a lot about stigma as a barrier, but also money. Um, uh, has been a problem uh, that um, money dried up for domestic HIV prevention work um, as new treatments came in, um, that the energy that was in the LGBT community for it sort of transitioned to gay marriage, um, and the energy that was in the AIDS world transitioned to international work. Um, Tell me about that and what the consequence has been. Well, I think Dr. Gibson really said it best to me where um, my story, I've done all this reporting, my story was supposed to come out on print on Sunday, but it comes out online earlier. I remember I was taking a chill, I was fishing, (laughs) and Dr. Gibson called me, and she was teary, tearing up, and she was really emotional. And I said, what's going on? And she said, all this money's coming in. Mm. People are sending money to us. And I said, oh, the story came online today. Wow. That's why in the middle of the week, she was like, oh, where is this coming from? And she, and I remember through tears, she said, I didn't know anybody cared. Oh, my goodness. Dr. Gibson, what about that? I, I, I will tell you this. I do amazing work. I, uh, I have a full-fledged clinic. It's a beautiful clinic. I have a pharmacy. I have case managers, clinicians the whole nine, transportation. And I've done all this with no money. Imagine who I could be if I got some money. (laughs) Just imagine, just imagine. Imagine who I could be if I didn't have to piecemeal 
things together to be able to make a whole. So yeah, the idea that we get when when Linda did the story, that was the first time we had money. I think we got some money from Afghanistan. I mean, it was money coming in that we've never gotten donations. I think it's also no one wants to send money to Mississippi because again for the connotation of it. But we got money for the first time because it's almost like people woke up to this is still happening, it's still a real thing, and it's still happening in Mississippi. And each time we get a, a dollar from anyone, it's always a testament to us of what we've been able to do. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that is really smart about the work you do, and it, it is a model and should be more of a model of care, is that you are not just doing HIV and AIDS work. You have a multi-service integrated clinic where people can get treatment for all kinds of things. So you're not running around to different places for this and that, where you can come and it's a more of a one-stop shop. And that was one of the things that really impressed me. It also speaks to the idea that you don't have to hide away. Everybody's coming to the care in the same place. You're not going to the HIV clinic that's behind the corner in the dark, behind the big potted plant. All right. In the the last uh, 30 seconds we have here, um, what do you think is the, is, is the, the one thing we need to be able to do, Dr. Gibson? Well, I think the one thing we need to be able to do is understand that uh, if if HIV was just killing us, then we could just focus on that. But there's so many other things that happen with us that we have to do more wraparound services. You can't just treat my HIV. You have to treat my mental health. You have to treat my transportation. You have to treat my food issues. All these things make for a person who has HIV to have a better life when you treat all the things that's happened in their life to make that person whole. June Gibson is with Mississippi-based nonprofit My Brother's Keeper. Linda Villarosa is a journalist and author. Her latest book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on Health of Our Nation. And Victor Reyes is in our podcast, Blind Spot, and is an activist in Washington, D.C. Victor, Linda, June, thank you so much. If you'd like to hear more of Victor's story, you can hear him in the podcast Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. You can find the full series now at blindspotpodcast.org or look for episodes in the podcast feed for this show, Notes from America. Thanks to my guest and thanks to everyone who called in. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Regina Dehir and Karen Frillman. Our theme music and sound design is by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando was at the board for the live show with help from Milton Ruiz. Special thanks to Lizzie Ratner, who was the lead reporter of our Blind Spot series, and to Emily Botine, Mike Kutchman, Bill O'Neill, Alicia Allen, and Sydney Bevitz. Our team also includes Katerina Barton, Suzanne Gabber, Felice Leone, Siona Petros, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Instagram is a great place to keep up with the show and share what you heard here with people in your community. Follow us at Notes with Kai. And I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time. 